is related to the small groups that we'll be having tonight. There we go. First, let me just start with a quote from Sharon's chapter, which if you haven't read, I highly recommend. I think it's a very nice chapter on equanimity. In that chapter, she says, Equanimity is the spacious stillness of the mind, a radiant calm that allows us to be present fully with all the different changing experiences that constitute our world and our lives. And we talked last week about how, met, or how equanimity and all the other Brahma-Viharas, the divine abodes, they allow our heart to be frictionless, like I was just saying, to meet any moment of our life. And so it's an intelligence, uh, sort of a spiritual intelligence that knows how to connect. So this is especially important with equanimity because the near enemy of equanimity, the thing that can masquerade as equanimity is a a holding back, an indifference. I'm okay, it's okay. But it's sort of an, an imposed okay. So can we... And this, is a, this would be a great topic for the small groups. Moments of your life where you had that sense of really connecting really being close to the situation, to the moment, but also uh, that spaciousness that Sharon talks about, a spacious stillness of the mind or an impartial mind. Connected, but impartial. Like, What's that like? Because we understand being impartial when it doesn't really matter. You know, like if we live in this neighborhood and somebody wants to do something in Linden Hills, you know, build a shopping mall in Linden Hills, you know, I can be pretty equanimous about it. Actually, I probably wouldn't be that equanimous about it, but you know what I mean. It's like, well, what they do in Eden Prairie doesn't matter too much to me. And, uh, but, you know, if they were doing it here, it would. So that's not equanimity. That's just that we don't care because it doesn't, it's not on my turf. So the question is, can we be equanimous when it, when we have the experience of being connected, that it is, it is relevant to me. I do care, or at least I care about the people that are affected. Equanimity, in fact, all four of the Brahma-Viharas, you know, they're characterized by being functional. And that's this point that I'm making of how they allow us to meet life. So they're really meant to be functional emotions. And this gets confusing sometimes because in the Buddhist tradition, they're used in two ways. They're used in a more ordinary way, like I'm talking about, like functional emotions. But they're also often used as meditative attainments where you develop a a deep state of loving kindness with loving kindness as the object, deep, deep state of absorption. And so they... We can get confused by the, you know, when people start talking about exalted, expansive, immeasurable states of mind, loving kindness to all beings in all 12 directions without any exceptions. That doesn't sound like an ordinary functional emotion. That sounds like maybe something a a saint can uh, manifest and when they're alone for a long time. (laughs) 
<laughs> Nobody, no real world interrupting their loving kindness reflection or their equanimity reflection. But in the real world, you know, that doesn't seem so relevant. So I think it's useful, especially for those of us in these kind of lives that we're living, to really think about these emotions functionally. What helps, what will help me stay connected as I go through the day? What attitude, what way of being, relating, could heal this moment as it actually is? Heal it in the sense of whatever fragmentation, whatever alienation or separation I'm feeling, it would, it would uh, cause that to fall away. So there would be replaced with a sense of, like connection just means wholeness. The sense of separation, subject-object, disappears to some degree. And there's a sense that the heart is owning, is connected with the experience. And another aspect of this functionality is, and especially with equanimity, this balanced nature where, you know, with equanimity, the mind, the heart is balanced. So it's not afraid of action, but it's also not afraid of stillness. It's not dependent on having something to say. It's not dependent on needing to be quiet. It's really nimble in that way to do what needs to be done. It's like in compassion, you know, you can see how important equanimity is with compassion. Because, you know, sometimes when we're around suffering, there's a lot to do. And the appropriate thing is to do what can be done. But then sometimes there's not really anything to do. But equanimity allows us not to be frustrated when we're around suffering and there's nothing we can do. We actually can stay open. And, you know, the example that's often given is we have a dear friend who's really sick or has cancer or something like that. And uh, we can be really, quote unquote, compassionate as long as we feel there's hope. But maybe when it it appears at times that there's no hope, the person's not going to get better, they're getting worse, then it can be hard sometimes to be compassionate because part of the mind was dependent on things getting better. So it's the equanimity that supports the compassion when there's nothing we can do about the suffering at hand. So the question, of course, is where does equanimity, how does it arise? You know, like uh, with the other three Brahma-Viharas, we we bring some situation to mind that creates a little, at least a little sliver, a little taste of real kindness, real compassion, real joy, right? And then it's like a little ember. We're just carefully, you know, blowing on it, giving it the right amount of oxygen, maybe throwing a little kindling or dried moss on it and getting a flame and taking, you know, just nurturing it. And that's how we, you know, with the combination of our memory and the phrases and feeling the heart center, we're just getting, taking something that's there and just allowing it to naturally expand 
when the conditions are ripe, the conditions of like remembering and the conditions of aiming the mind, using a phrase to aim the heart or mind in a particular direction, feeling the effect on the heart immediately, directly, you know, just feeling energetically the heart and how things begin to break up and open up and loosen up as we remember the person in a particular way and use the phrases in a particular way. Now, equanimity may be a little bit harder to get that seed. Like, what do we bring to mind that supports that vast, spacious, balanced, impartial, accepting, inclusive attitude about the changing conditions of life? What helps? And traditionally, you know, equanimity is related to understanding the three characteristics or related to wisdom. You know, one of the most common descriptions of wisdom or insight in the Buddhist tradition is the deepening understanding of change, deepening understanding of grasping, or that uh, any grasping is dukkha, and the deepening understanding of the impersonal nature, the anatta characteristic, that there's really no center anywhere to what's happening. Or, in other words, the simple way of saying what the cause, the proximate cause for equanimity is, the simple way is that when the mind sees things as they actually are, equanimity arises. Just like when the mind sees friendliness as it actually is, that's the cause for metta, loving kindness to arise. When the mind or the heart sees directly compassion, you know, that connecting, being close to suffering in a, in a healthy way, that's the cause for compassion to grow. And connecting with joy is the cause for joy to grow. So the cause for equanimity is to see things as they are because seeing things as they are means that um, any stance is impossible. You can't ha- you can't see things as they actually are and have a stance. They just don't go together. Because the more we open, the more the mind opens to these three characteristics. Any one of these three or all three together, but let's just say uh, Nietzsche, change first. So the more that we tune into change, just how ephemeral everything is and how all it is, everything is, is just a process, a process of change. There's not actually even a Monday. You know, where is the Monday in Monday? You know, it's just a, whatever you say, it's already on its way out. So Monday is actually like every day, any moment, it's this process of arising and disappearing. You know, and we just say that this begins, you know, this moment of arising, disappearing until this moment of arising, disappearing, we call Monday. But when we actually look at any part, any moment of Monday, there's really nothing there but arising and disappearing, like any moment. So when we really investigate change, the mind ceases to grasp, to take any stance, because it doesn't make sense. The mind only does it when it makes sense, and it makes sense when we're not paying attention to change, and we're more in the world of concepts, and then it can make sense to grasp this opinion, this idea, this concept, to take it as some 
sort of stable, permanent truth. Well, this is how it is. This is who I am. This is who you are. It's the same with dukkha. The more we understand stress and how because of this fluid, ephemeral nature of all conditions that make up our lives, then we, we begin to recognize and we can reflect on this, and this would be the cause for equanimity. We reflect on that because things are so ephemeral, any kind of grasping security, wanting things to be stable, is frustrating. It's dukkha. It's true with an identity, like wanting this identity to be who I am or this idea of you to be who you are or this thing I call my life, you know, how I define my life, my house. Like any kind of stability that I grasp as some security, that's stressful. Any ground we create for our lives is the cause for dukkha. Now, the more we see that, the more the mind releases that habit of grasping and it becomes impartial. It becomes equanimous. And the same thing with the anatta characteristic, the impersonal nature of things. The more we cultivate that reflection just about the way things are changing, how it's a conditional process. There's no center to that conditional process we call our life or this culture or any aspect of the changing nature of things, if we look at any aspect of it, the whole or just one small piece of it, we never find a center to it. Just like we never find a center to Monday or we never find a center to weather, we never find a center to anything because it's an interdependent process. Everything is in flux and affecting everything else. It's always been that way. And there's just this appearance that there's a center to whom it's happening or to whom it, it, who owns it or belongs to it or something. We, we impute a center over and over again. But when we look, we don't find it and that leads to a profound feeling of equanimity again. So, whatever aspect of the nature of things the mind opens to, the result is equanimity. Or another way you could say that the result is the letting go of attachment, the letting go of a stance, the letting go of the need for expectations, the need for agendas. The mind, the attitude, the view, we could say, the view of the mind starts to come into alignment with Dhamma, the nature of things. Right, so if the nature of things is this fluid, interdependent unfolding, then the view starts to look like that. And that, you know, if, if our attitude, our view, our mood is an interdependent, natural unfolding, well, there's no room for grasping for some set stance. This is who I am. This is who you are. What's left is a profound intimacy, sensitivity, but without the stance. And that's what we call equanimity, where the, there's no distance, because that's a stance. Standing back and saying, oh my God, the world's a crazy place. Everything's changing. It's crazy. You know, That's not equanimity, that's a stance. 
you see that's a self-centered stance. I'm standing back, looking down. I used to go backpacking with this college buddy of mine. He did a lot of backpacking uh, in the early 80s. And uh, he once read a book, and he used to quote from this book, it was some French explorer. <laughs> and he just had this sort of, this very arrogant, and you, you see this sometimes in the backpacking community, rock climbing community, because it's, it's an intense thing. It can be, for some people, an intense thing. And, and then there's a certain hierarchy, like if you can do really intense things and other people are just sort of you know, driving their cars and doing their thing. And so anyway, he, we used to kind of, uh, he used to say this uh, quote from this, and, and he, he spoke French, and he'd, so he'd do it with a really great French accent. And evidently, this author of this this French uh, mountain climber said something like about being on top of a mountain. You know, it's like uh, you know this exalted state. I can't remember exactly what he says, but something like you know I'm in this exalted state, looking down at all these grubs living their meaningless lives. <laughs> you know, and that that can be that that can masquerade as a kind of wisdom where I'm indifferent. I'm not caught up in the superficiality of all these other people. I have equanimity. You know, I'm not so stupid to need to, you know, have a fancy sports car or need to go to the gym to have muscles or, you know, whatever we can get. You know, we can become obsessed about anything as opposed to, you know, the worldly grubs who are caught up in the cultural stream of things. And so... That's that equanimity. That's, you know, conceit. And it's a, a powerful stance that inevitably leads to suffering. So in terms of our small groups, you know, let's just imagine uh, how functional equanimity allows us to be in life, like how it makes these emotions of kindness and joy and compassion functional, where we can be kind without any agenda, without attachment, like we can be friendly with our partners without expecting anything from them. <laughs> I mean, it, it always astounds me how, how much, how often my mind reverts to this sort of business-like relationship. Like, you know, it's like uh, kindness is a commodity. Like, I'll be kind if I get what I want from you. But if I'm not getting what I want from you, then I'm sorry, I'm going to have to take some of my kindness back and <laughs> hold on to it. Because I, the last thing I'd want to do is give this idea that the kindness is just free, you know? <laughs> Now, maybe I'm the only one in the room <laughs> or maybe my mindfulness is so developed that I see it and nobody else does. <laughs> but it's interesting for me to see that, you know, that attitude. And see, that's what equanimity does with friendliness. It makes it a free gift. It's like we're friendly for its own sake. It's not a part of a business relationship like I'm friendly in order to manipulate the other person or the other people. Same with compassion I talked about. Same with joy. Like, what's joy without equanimity? Well, we get really attached to the pl 
pleasantness of joy to the expansiveness of joy. Now, we don't really care about appreciating the other person. We just want to trip over joy. We just want to, you know, we're, we're basically hooked on intensity. So we're, we're looking for things to get intense about. Oh, this happened to you? You know, and then we're immediately, we're just sort of jumping off into our own um, whipped up state of mind even though we might have briefly connected with something that happened to that person, maybe something exciting. But then we're just trying, you know, to feed off of our own joy, which is uh, stinky, of course. So in your small groups, you can look at how beautiful states of mind for you have gotten corrupted at times when there wasn't equanimity. So... It was initially, there was some real beautiful quality to the way you were connecting to some moment of your life, to some person, for example, through compassion, through kindness, through joy, appreciative joy, empathetic joy. But then the, there wasn't enough equanimity there and it started to stink in one way or another. Things got tight. And so you could share that. You can share other experiences where the, you know, you were able to maintain, like I said before, that sense of balance in life, like really close, but the heart, mind, and balance not attached, really nimble. If there's something to do, you did it. If there wasn't anything to do, that was okay. Isn't that nice when we're with a friend, <clears throat> family member maybe, where uh, there's that just that real even natural unfolding of your time together, where sometimes there's talking and sometimes there's silence and sometimes things get really silly and sometimes things get really serious and there's nobody like neither one of you or like dependent on it being any particular way. So that interaction, let's say it's a long car ride or spend a weekend at a cabin together or, you know, or on a backpacking trip or something like that. So you've got, and it, there's just that natural ebb and flow of the relationship. And the equanimity is the not controlling of the unfolding, you know, like, well, this is okay, well, this can be okay, and this can be okay, and whatever's next can be okay. And just understanding that we can be close. And then even if things get tight, that can be okay too. You know, the, I mean, this is one of the real fruits of, you know, practicing, both of us practicing. But I notice this a lot, that when things get tight in a relationship, there's just a lot less fear than there used to be. So that, uh, that like, that can be a natural thing too. Just like a natural moment of real beauty or intimacy or sweetness. There can be moments of real honest prickliness and uh, fear and uh, neediness and all kinds of things I felt. But I don't judge that or see that as a problem. And I also see that as a result of equanimity. So these are some of the things you might share.
just see here. I think there were a couple other things in the small groups. Impartial, without disconnection. That's what I just said. Examples of wholesome states where equanimity faded, near enemy arose. I mentioned that. Uh, examples of insight into anicca, dukkha, anatta, leading onward toward equanimity. So that's another thing you can bring up. And mind without equanimity, mind with equanimity. So we'll break up into small groups. Um, Time for probably three minutes per person, then about five minutes for the whole group. Looks like we have maybe 50 people here. So 15 is 45. Let's do 16 tonight. Um, You want to start? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, one. So you guys will be one group, okay? And maybe you can just be in this corner. And then one in this corner. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight in the lobby. Feel free to bring some of the blue chairs. Nine, ten, eleven in the community room. Uh, 12 on around Shelley's desk, 13 in my office. One of you can get my keys. 14 on the white couch, 15 uh, in the workshop, and 16 either. Why don't you meet outside uh, on the benches, and then if it's too cold, just go wherever you want to go. That's not good. <laughs> Any questions? And so it's okay, you know, one thing, because we have a little bit more time tonight, you know, it's okay to take, a, once you settle, decide the order, it's okay to take a couple minutes of silence and just get your thoughts together before one person begins to talk. And then you can just start timing when the first person begins then. That way, because uh, we didn't have that much time to reflect on what you might say. Okay. So we'll come back a few minutes before nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.